Hi, my name is Kiara Aho. I am a flutist and educator based originally at, and based in Miami, Florida. Uh, I graduated from my master's degree from Austin P State University in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, right when the pandemic started and I moved back uh, last May. And now I'm just uh, like my sister, we're both finding our way through this, this thing called the classical music industry. Excellent, I'm so happy you're here. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about what kind of got you started in music in the first place. I know before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about your family. So can you talk a little bit about those early music experiences and you know what that environment was like growing up? So uh, growing up um, out of my parents, I would say that my mom was more of the avid classical music listener. My mom tells me that when she was pregnant with my twin sister and I, that she actually listened to a lot of classical music. Um, but growing up, there was always a lot of um, a lot of Cuban music in the house because my parents are originally from Cuba. They were brought to this country when they were when they were just in their preteens. So, um, so my sister and I, we, uh, we actually didn't start out playing flute actually. So in fifth grade, uh, my mom signed us up for, in our local music store for lessons. So her first instrument was guitar and my first instrument was piano, but we uh, we kind of lost interest. And then our middle school didn't have like a specific like piano program or guitar program. Mm -hmm. They were best known for their for the band program. Like it was one of at that time, it was one of the best band programs in Miami-Dade County. Uh, at one point, they had gone like 10 years getting like consecutive like straight superiors in all in out-of-state competitions mm -hmm. so when my middle school band director told me you can't play piano I was like okay I'll compromise I'll pick percussion <laughs> what I didn't know though is that they had a rhythm test and mm. if you pass the rhythm test then you would become a percussionist mm -hmm. so I did that rhythm test and I flunked it <laughs> and my my band director was like okay you got to pick another instrument so I thought long and hard and I thought about um actually when I was in the fourth grade let me backtrack my dad he got a flute for one of his friends and he took us to his house. He was showing us what he could do with his new flute. And he had an album of, of Nestor Torres, who's a famous uh, Latin jazz flutist. And uh, that kind of sparked my interest on the flute um, unconsciously. And 
I told my middle school band director, okay, I'll stick with the flute. <laughs> so I got home from school that day and uh, I asked Karina, my twin sister, uh, what instrument does she fit pick? We asked each other and we both said flute. And then we were like, okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What a great story too. And um, having a sibling, not only alongside you growing up musically, but also playing the same instrument as you is a pretty interesting experience. I know like I am the oldest of three and my next younger brother played the same instrument as me. So it's always kind of funny, like when we ended up in band together because we were always in the same section. <laughs> and so <laughs> That kind of created some interesting um, dynamics there as well. But you not only, you know, did your, you know, K-12 or when you started in middle school education, uh, playing the same instrument together, but you also continued at the collegiate level in a similar sort of environment together. So what was that experience like, um, you know, having that journey with a sibling? So I kind of want to like, preface this by saying that um, it was a hard journey for both mm -hmm. of us yeah. Um, because we didn't come from money. So we didn't always have access to the best quality instruments and we didn't always have access to uh, consistent private lessons. So um, we actually came from uh, a high school that was, not well-funded and it was considered one of the worst band programs in in Dade County at that time and um so when it was came time for college auditions you know we both made the decision to just do just do um auditions like all over the state of Florida yeah and uh so during that, um, my, the person that ended up being our first undergrad flute teacher, she was, she had met us when we were juniors. Cause we did, uh, we did honor band, mm -hmm. uh, my junior year. And then we worked with her a little bit at, um, the young musicians camp at the, at the university of Miami. And, uh, we saw her again, my senior year. And she, she told both of us hey, I hear that you're auditioning for colleges. Why don't you come study with me? So, so it turned out that we, um, that, well, in my sister's case, she, she ended up, uh, she ended up getting into the music school of the University of Florida, but mm -hmm. she didn't actually get into the, to the actual university. And then, she um she got into i think the the actual university of florida international university mm -hmm. but i don't think she got into the music school and then in my case because my my sat scores they were okay but they weren't like super high and mm -hmm. my gpa was pretty good but again, it wasn't like that 5.0 or whatever. So I didn't get it. 
and my technique wasn't that good at the time. So I was kind of considered the underdog in high school. Yeah. And in my undergrad a little bit. So I didn't get into any of the schools that I auditioned for. And long story short, I uh, auditioned for, so the two of us, we auditioned for Miami-Dade College, which is where we did uh, the first part of our undergrad. By the way, nothing wrong with uh, doing a college in starting out in a community college. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it ended up, uh, it ended up saving us in the long run. Mm-hmm. Cause I know a bunch of people that they come out of their undergrad and they owe like so much money in student loans. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I feel like some people, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure to, uh, approach music school from one, you know, straight and arrow path, right? The stereotypical way to get in, to go through the process and to get out and magically have a job, right? And the reality is that that's not the way that most people end up having to go through it. Like whether it's getting into school, whether it's being in school and going through that process, or if it's out in the professional world, which now we are in this COVID craziness right now. So it's hard enough to get a job as is. But I do agree with you. Like, I know quite a few people started off at a community college or, you know, started off by getting into the university first, taking those sorts of classes and then starting at the music school. So there isn't a right way to go about it. Right. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure that, you know, we all need to follow a certain way um, to get through music school. So for those people that are listening at home and are, you know, feeling that sort of pressure, know that there are people out there that, you know, may not have approached music school in the stereotypical way that, you know, we feel like we have to when we're in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we, so the two of us, we, we were always very like studious and we always wanted to, to, to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, she ended up she ended up doing like undergrad, like in basically in your traditional uh, all four years. She ended up having to take an extra semester because she had to uh, she had to take a class that she she hadn't taken before. But in my case, I took an extra year. Yeah. And looking back, that extra year actually helped me. Mm hmm. So I spent three years, three out of my five years of undergrad through Miami-Dade College. And then I ended up transferring to the college division of New World School of the Arts, which is a performing arts high school and college based in downtown Miami that is affiliated with the University of Florida. Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a great story um, as well to show like your resilience in keeping with up with your instrument, keeping up with your musical studies um, to get into a school like that. And you had mentioned how uh, you and your sister and your family struggled financially a lot. So you didn't have um, as many opportunities as some of your peers may have had. You were talking about how like you may have not been playing on the best instruments and things like that. So can you talk a little bit more about how those issues of equity 
um, affected you when you were younger and how you, um, have strove to like come above those issues of equity. Like you were saying, how you eventually got into music school and those things. So how was that struggle, um, for you growing up with those issues? Um, well, it wasn't just the instrument thing that, that I struggled with personally, like I'm speaking for myself. I also struggled uh, with, um, as many uh, music students struggle with, is they have, they end up having like uh, a bunch of people who tell you out front, you're never going to make it. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I could say that it happened to me um, in two occasions. The first, it happened when I was just in my freshman year of high school. It was like uh, my high school band director sat in a parent-teacher conference with my mom, and he told her that he didn't think I would have a career as a musician. Mm. And it wasn't until the end of my sophomore year of high school that I uh, earned his respect uh and then in my undergrad i also dealt with a band director who constantly overlooked my talent and my freshman year he tried to put me in pre-applied flute lessons so my teacher at the time she wasn't having any of that and she went full on mama bear on him and was like <laughs> no she is better than you think she is and mm-hmm. she deserves to be in college lessons. Um, and also, I have been struggling with major performance anxiety from the time that I was in my sophomore year of high school. And in the middle of my undergrad, it actually got to the point that it was so bad that I actually dreaded performing. Mm-hmm. And it would affect how I would conduct myself in orchestra rehearsals, in my lessons with with, uh, both of my undergrad flute teachers, and believe it or not, even class piano. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of good points that you made about, you know, your struggle as well, because you had someone like your high school band director, who is seen as kind of like a person of authority in your life, right? And a very influential person who was not promoting you as a musician and not being supportive. Um, and and I've had very similar situations before in my life as well. It's one of the reasons why I became a band director because I was looking at this one individual in my life and going, there must be a better way to do that. I'm going to find the better way to do that. So you had that experience, but you had someone also in your corner advocating for you. And I think that that's amazing that you had a person in your life, like your flute teacher, that was a person that was going to be that advocate, was going to stick up for you. And I hope that any educators out there that are listening are thinking about being that person and being that advocate for a student who may be struggling or a student who might be experiencing what you had experienced with your high school band director as well. Um, So I hope that we all can be advocates for our students. And I know you're a teacher now. So 
I know that that connection probably stays with you. You know, the experience that you had with your teacher, you're going to carry on now um, with your students as well, because all of our past experiences um, affect how we behave in the future for sure. And as long as far as performance anxiety stuff goes, I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I can say that I've had a very similar experience where my performance anxiety was extremely terrible in college as well. (laughs) And I found that like, because I played my primary instrument trumpet for so long, I was kind of able to combat it in a way that it wasn't completely like shutting me down when I would perform, but it was definitely affecting me. But in class piano, it would shut me down completely. Like when I started to have my performance anxiety, that would shut me down because I didn't spend you know, nearly as many years on piano as I spent on trumpet. I was very brand new to the instrument when I went to music school. And so that would completely shut me down. So I can um, empathize with you in that way that I had a very similar experience um, when I was in college studying music as well. Performance anxiety is a huge thing and a huge kind of chasm in the classical music world that is kind of um, old fashioned in the way that people treat it, where they just go like, well, you just got to suck it up and that sort of thing. And we don't really talk about different strategies and ways that um, we can combat it for our students. I don't think we approach it in a super practical way either. And I feel like that's why so many of us still struggle with it today is because we've never actually had someone say, hey, this is something that I've tried that has been a solution for me. I don't know if you've had um, any experiences where you've come up with solutions for yourself to help with that performance anxiety, but I haven't really come up with like the golden answer for myself yet. I mean, I, so I graduated high school in 2011 Mm -hmm. and between 2011 and 2015, it wasn't talked about a lot. Like it was considered taboo to talk about performance anxiety. And during that time, I kind of, uh, I was kind of ashamed to admit that I actually struggle with performance anxiety. Uh, So I think the first time that I actually told somebody right up front, Hey, I'm, I'm freaking out. I, I, I don't know how to, um, I don't know how to combat this was actually in my senior year of undergrad, mm-hmm. which was like the fall of 2015, uh, spring of 2016. Uh, for my senior recital, I actually had the opportunity to perform with two of my teachers. One of them was my music history professor who was a box scholar and the other was my undergrad piano teacher who has a well-versed career, not only as a teacher, but also as an orchestral pianist and also as a, as a concert pianist. And he had been like, like performing as a soloist from the time that he was 14 years old. And, uh, I ended up playing like two of the most popular like flute pieces with him. Mm -hmm. And um, I told both of them, I was like, hey, I'm freaking out. I I don't know if I'm going to pass my hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, uh, the rehearsal that I had with my piano teacher, 
uh, two days before my hearing, I remember, I remember I went into his office, like freaking out because I, I thought that I actually thought I was going to fail my hearing. Yeah. And at the end of the rehearsal, like, as I was packing up, he was, he said to me, he's like, I have no doubt that you're going to pass your hearing. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. You're going to be fine. He always said that to me, even when I would play for him in class piano, because he knew how nervous I would get. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's like that support system that I was talking about before, where you have an advocate for you or just someone to just talk to you and encourage you um, to do your best. And I think that that is really helpful knowing someone's in your corner when you are struggling with performance anxiety or someone that's been there, you know, that can kind of empathize with you and be like, yeah, you know what? I've been there before. I think, and you brought up the good point about how, how it is taboo. I think it's becoming less so because I think everybody's just more open to having conversations about all sorts of issues in classical music. But I I do agree that it was seen for a very long time as being a sign of weakness to admit that they were struggling, that people were struggling with something like that. I think that's where the kind of the taboo um, element comes in. And I guess um, to like sort of wrap up our whole conversation about all of these topics, um, you are just are trying to navigate this sort of COVID world being a professional musician and those sorts of things. And so Um, Do you have any projects that you're working on now or things that you're striving to do in the future um, when our world goes back to, you know, somewhat normal and that sort of thing? (laughs) Um, So right now I'm, well, number one, I'm trying to uh, keep building my teaching studio. Um, And then I'm hoping that in the next six months, I'm hoping that I'll be able to um, to uh, create uh, performance opportunities for myself while uh, orchestras are still trying to figure out what they're going to do with the whole like COVID situation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I feel like a lot of musicians right now are trying to come up with creative solutions to to develop more performance opportunities as well. I think it's going to be a a long process, but um, I have noticed that people are very enthusiastic for, for live music to come back, to learn an instrument again and those things. And I see that as a very positive outcome of this situation um, is that people are very enthusiastic and motivated to, uh, to come back to, you know, be with one another, listen to music, perform music and that sort of thing. So I do see that as being a, a positive. So we always got to look for positives. So I'm trying to teach <laughs> myself now because uh, I tend to be a person that call myself a realist, but I uh, tend to look at the negatives in situations. So, but uh, Kiara, I want to thank you so much uh, for giving me your time today. It was so wonderful talking with you about your experiences. And I hope that um, some of our listeners can also relate to some of the things that you're talking about today and, and find some comfort in knowing that, you know, we've been through what you're, what they're going through right now. So I thank you so much. My pleasure. So, hi. My name is Karina Ajo, and I am a flutist and uh, private flute teacher in Miami, Florida. Um, So because of COVID, like, I haven't haven't been performing as much, but uh, um, I'm in the process of 
sort of building my studio and uh, getting connected with um, everybody here in Miami um, since this is where I'm from and uh, uh, I moved last year right in the middle of the pandemic after I graduated um, so it's been a slow process so I'm reconnecting with everybody here but um, hopefully things can uh, come back soon. Yeah, COVID has definitely been a pretty huge transition for everyone, especially performers um, during this time. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your early music experiences and that sort of thing. I know you mentioned that you were from Miami. So what got you started in music in the first place? Uh, so cool story. Um, so I'm actually first generation Cuban American and a lot of like salsa music and charanga music um, a lot of the music that I grew up listening to always had like th these really cool like solo flute riffs going around and my dad was actually like really passionate about music and like collected instruments and like tried every instrument that you can think of and in fourth grade he actually got a flute from somebody that that he worked with and he started learning how to play the flute um at that time around fifth grade um i first learned guitar and i i just couldn't deal with the frets <laughs> so when i got into sixth grade band uh they were like oh we don't do guitar and piano here unless like you've done it for one year and then you would be in jazz band not in beginning band so pick a wind instrument and then i started thinking for a while and it just seemed really natural, like I just picked the flute. Um, in between, when I went into high school, uh, as most of us wind players do marching band, <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of funny. Um, in in marching band, there were too many flutes, as there's, <laughs> as most of the time, there's just a lot of flutes. Um, so my band director actually had me play saxophone alto saxophone for marching band and uh so i did that like all throughout high school but then i was like i really love the flute so then senior year i uh i mean throughout high school i was going playing both um flute and then alto sax for jazz band and things like that and then when i got to senior year i was like i really want to go and study music and i need to focus on one instrument and I much prefer flute over saxophone. No offense to saxophone players. Um, I just really <laughs> love the flute. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I did my undergrad here in uh, New World School of the Arts College, which is affiliated with the University of Florida here in Miami. And then I graduated with my master's in flute performance at Austin P. State University. That's awesome. Great. And yeah, no, it's great that you like the flute more because you ended up being a flautist anyway. So <laughs> it all worked out in the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned that you're a first generation uh, Cuban American and how your um, father was kind of an influential figure in um, your choice of instrument and your musical experiences growing up. Um, has your culture in any way, you know, being a first generation Cuban American, how has that kind of influenced, um, you know, your choices in music, your preferences, maybe some of your experiences you have, how you perceive, um, you know, the classical music world and the popular music world and that sort of thing? 
Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so I guess I'll start uh, by saying that culturally, like, um, my mom and dad were both very open. My mom always uh, talks about how I, I mean, I'll mention to the listeners here that I have a twin sister. Her name is Kiara, and um, she's also a professional flutist. And my mom would always talk about how when she was pregnant with us, she would always put classical music. So that might have had something to do with us becoming (laughs) musicians. Um, And then there was a... And then, uh, you know, like with with being... Part of being Hispanic and just being a first-generation American here, like, uh, I feel like my family members have, have thought that, like, like have been worried about, like, like my sister and I sort of making it in the music industry and yeah. oh, it's, it's really hard and things like that. And I just, you know, I'm of the philosophy of like, you know, this is what I love to do and people spend 30% or more of their life working and I would hate to waste that time of my life doing something that, that I don't love doing. And, uh, uh, that's why, that's why I've been, like, going full force and, like, m- like, doing this, uh, pursuing this career in music. Um, but I mean, as far as, like, being a Hispanic person, if, if that, I'm, I'm not sure if I understood the question correctly, but being a Hispanic person in the classical music industry, um, I think, I think, uh, Orchestras now are making the conscious decision to be more diverse with their repertoire mm-hmm. and and in in uh, the members that they choose. Um, for a long time, uh, I actually started out college as a music education major because I didn't know that you could make money being a performer. Like, I always thought, like, you have to... If you're gonna be a performer, you also have to teach because you know you you have to have both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't know that there was there were people out there that were full time orchestra players. So I thought that was really cool, and and it just made me question through my journey, uh, you know, why I didn't know that before. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, and so you had mentioned um, a little bit touching on um, your college experiences um, and your education. So can you delve a little bit more into um, what your collegiate experiences were like um, for both your undergrad and your graduate work um, and kind of how that influenced um, what you are perceiving your musical career as now professionally? Okay, Uh, so in undergrad, um, I didn't talk about this before, but I actually started in a two-year college first and then I transferred over to New World School of the Arts Um, at first when I first graduated from high school like my first teacher Susan DeGoria she was like you know you've done so much on your own Mm -hmm. because uh, my sister and I we we didn't really have private a lot of private lessons growing up like my my dad I always I always joke and say that my dad wasn't the best gift giver so he would give us cash to, for our birthday and Christmas money. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to use this money to pay for lessons. So I would use that to pay for lessons. And then uh, 
Um, and then um, a lot of people in, in my college, in my first two years of college especially, like, weren't thinking about performance. Like, all, a lot of them were thinking of being band directors. And it wasn't really until the end of my sophomore year of college that I saw the New, New World Symphony perform because we have the New World Symphony here in Miami. And uh, I was just like, oh my God, like, I don't want to be a band director. Like, nothing against band directors. What they do is, like, amazing, especially in this past year. But I just, at that point, I just couldn't see myself being a band director. Like, I just mm -hmm. wanted to be up there in the action, performing, and also teaching because I do like teaching as well. And then when I transferred over to my second school of my undergrad uh, to do my junior and senior year, um, and I think this is something that happens with a lot of wind players. Like I, I, uh, I definitely had a lot of great teachers and great chamber music experience, um, but as far as like the orchestral type of playing, um, it like there was there were just a lot of flutists and it was super super competitive so yeah. um i i would i would just i i was thinking like wow this is so cutthroat now and i'm in the school environment the safe and the quote-unquote safe environment what's it gonna be like out there um so in junior senior year of college i sort of was like i really want to play and, and I want to perform in some capacity, like it doesn't have to be a full-time orchestra because I do want to combine performing and teaching. Um, but then also, um, which, I, which I spoke about in another interview I did with a different podcast, um, I went through a performance injury like right when I was graduating from my senior year of undergrad. Um, mm -hmm. and that made me think like, why don't I have this information? So it got me a little bit frustrated that that information of like practicing and, and over practicing wasn't available to me. So, um, as part of like some of my future goals, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate for performance health and I, and yeah. I'm working towards getting like the certifications on, on like body mapping and things like that because I do think it's super important. Um, and then in my graduate uh, school, I had such a great experience in my graduate school. Um, we had a really really great an ensemble, and we also had a we also had a good orchestra, and. Um, the conductor of the or the director of bands there, he's actually a professional conductor. So what I loved about that experience is he wasn't just a quote unquote director of bands. He was a professional conductor. So he was treating us and expected us to uphold uh, a level of professionalism that I hadn't seen in a school environment. So I thought that was really nice in my in my graduate program. And I also um, I also got to dabble in Alexander Technique um, because of the tendonitis and stuff that I've, I've had. I found that like super helpful. Wow, that's awesome. And the the funny thing is with with 
a few people that I've interviewed that have really explored and dove into um, performance-related injuries and things like that, it always kind of stems from something that they've personally had to experience, right? Like you were saying, like you were struggling with a performance-related injury and it kind of sparked this interest. So the negative is that you had to experience that injury, but the positive outcome of it is that you found something that, you know, piques your interest and that sort of thing. And um, I actually had, uh, I think it was episode 51 of my podcast. I had Kaylee Miller on as a guest and um, she is a um, personal trainer um, as well as a violist. Um, and she studies movement and music and she has her own, um, blog called musicians health collective and that sort of thing. And so she works a lot with, um, bodily injury and performance related injury. And, um, you know, some of her clients are musicians, some aren't, but she does work heavily in that sort of field. So that might be something that you want to check out or if anyone else in, in, is listening and is interested in that topic as well. That was a really great interview that I did with her. Um, but that is, um, a topic, like you said, that, you know, isn't very popular. We don't really explore. We don't really teach it, especially to college students about how to properly take care of their health while being a musician, while being a professional musician, you know, not, not just physical, mental and emotional health as well. It's a definitely a huge hole in our, you know, circle when you are a student. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point because that is very much needed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just keep thinking back to like when I was an undergrad that I was like taking like 18, 20 credits and then I was trying to like, which which included like three or four ensembles and then I had to like do private lessons and then I had to cram in like four or five hours of practice and then and then I had and then I had a job. So then it's just like, okay. Mm -hmm. like, like, <laughs> it was a recipe for disaster, actually. So um, I just hope that, uh, you know, that I can be one of those people that, that puts the information out there so that people don't have to uh, get to the brink of burnout or get to the brink of, like, an irreversible performance injury where they need surgery or they need to, or worse, they need to stop playing to be able to have this information. Yeah, what I always find interesting about this topic as well and this this hole that exists is that I don't know if you experienced the same thing when you were when you were studying in college, but like for me, there's always this perception that um, the more that we can play and the, the longer that you could play, somehow that's supposed to make you a stronger player, things like that. And I think it pushes people to a point where they're playing way too much and the expectation of how much we're supposed to play in a day is so high. And somehow that, you know, the amount of hours that you put in a day is somehow supposed to make you a better musician. So it ends up being, you know, the perception is the quantity of practicing instead of the quality of practicing, right? And I think it's actually taken me until like the past few years, like being in grad school to like figure out how to really practice efficiently and to practice with quality and not push myself to a point where like I am, you know, potentially facing injury. Um, I think that, you know, as young musicians, we kind of have this perception that, oh, the more I can play in a day, the better I'm going to be versus the more quality I can um, approach my practice session, the, the more of a quality musician I'm going to be. So like the perception, um, tends to shift as we get older. But if we could start that shift with younger students and really focus on 
healthy playing and teaching kids how to actually practice <laughs> and how to go about doing it. I think that's how we solve um, that issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion, like, um, I recently did, um, you actually had a Katie Velasquez in, in a previous episode, and, mm-hmm. I did her, and I did her festival, and one of the things that that we sort of talked about a lot in the festival is it's that, you know, it's it's always good to sort of address the fundamental things, which include, like, how to take care of your body, like, from when you're really young and when you start. Because at yeah. the end of the day, more is not better if you're practicing on autopilot, you know? It's just not going to work. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. And I'm glad that you were able to attend her festival as well because her she, she seems so amazing. And I wish I was a flautist because I would have totally gotten to a festival if I was. But it's awesome that you were able to attend that. Um, Let's transition a little bit um, from your collegiate experiences to talk a little bit about your professional life. I know you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that you are in the process, like many uh, professional musicians are, of transitioning out of uh, COVID and going into this. I don't really know if I could call it a post-COVID world yet. I guess some people are calling it that, but it's not gone yet, people. Um, (laughs) This world where we're kind of slowly, hopefully someday going back to normal. Um, So what sort of projects have you been um, thinking about approaching or maybe things that you're currently doing in your professional uh, life that you'd like to talk a little bit about? Um, well, I mean, for right now, because performances are down, mm-hmm. uh, my priority is in building a private flute teaching studio. Um, and my and, and my idea with this is with the uh, with the idea that if we can get people started on the right foot with their playing with their fundamentals, mm-hmm. all of that, in the mental, physical way, um, healthy way, um, then they can end up being better players. Um, it's still sort of in the very early stages, um, just because, you know, um, I graduated pretty much in the middle of the pandemic, so it's been a little bit challenging to uh, get things off of the ground, but it's something that I'm definitely actively trying to work on. That's excellent. And I wish you the best of luck with that. Um, I think uh, a lot of people um, are worried about, you know, the state of younger students being involved in music and in playing an instrument and that sort of thing. And, you know, I was one of those people that uh, was a little skeptical about, you know, numbers and uh, things going back with like my ensembles because I'm a band director and I was oh, all worried about, you know, I was going to lose a bunch of kids because of COVID and that sort of thing. And then as soon as we started back this past summer, I saw the excitement that kids had about finally coming back to school in person and being able to play with one another again and not have to stand like 12 feet apart from each other. And because I'm in the Cleveland, Ohio area, so that's kind of what we've been doing. And they were just so excited and they feel so passionate about what they're doing. And they're just so motivated now because they've been, that's been, you know, taken from them for so long um, that it brought me a lot of like positivity and a lot of hope um, for, you know, music programs going forward. And I think that 
you know, private teachers too, as they build their studios will also have the same sort of draw from students to want to come back to their instrument or continue on their instrument and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited for the potential future in that as well. I, I don't think we will see a drastic decrease in numbers of kids wanting to participate. I think we'll actually see an increase in kids wanting um, to be a part of music making again in person. I think that's going to be a very positive outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think the wonderful thing about music making in general is the community that, that you develop. And especially with kids, like, I just feel so much for kids. I have a niece and nephew that they're four years old and two years old. And like, throughout the whole pandemic, like, yeah, I've been thinking about like, how it's been hard to recruit students. But really, I feel for the kids. I feel for yeah. how they haven't been able to develop and socialize and and be with kids their age and going back to like like kids in bands like they're just yearning for that like human to human connection and i really love how music can do that yeah absolutely for sure and speaking of um that human connection piece um, reading your bio uh, before we met to record this episode um one part of your bio really um jumped out at me. And that was your experience working with the Miami Music Project. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the Miami Music Project and your experience um, with it as well? Yeah, so actually, I worked with them from 2015 to 2018. And I'm actually this school year, I'm coming back and working with a teaching artist with them. And, awesome. their, basic, and their basic philosophy is combining community and music making and mm -hmm. keeping keeping kids in from underserved communities off the streets um, so that they can have access to quality music education and after school programs and things like that with the um, I don't know if you've heard of it but the El Sistema philosophy mm -hmm. of just uh, community and music making uh, and it's, it's just been a great experience with them. And that's why part of why I decided to go back, um, being able to teach kids of all ages from like six years old to like 17, 18 years old, being able to teach all kinds of ensembles, choir, orchestra, things like that. And, uh, and I've also had the opportunity to, to teach flute, but, um, I love how, uh, the program has uh, shown me how to really work with kids and how to just be malleable in an ever-changing world um, in with, with musicians and music educators. That's excellent. I wish there were more programs like that out there, for sure, helping um, kids who may not have access to those resources that a lot of us have been lucky to have experienced growing up. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And my final question for you, um, reflecting on your experiences um, growing up, you know, in, in college and that sort of thing, maybe applying to music school, um, preparing and being a part in that program. So thinking about your time, you know, up until this point in your career, um, what advice would you give to, you know, maybe a younger version of you who's thinking about um, pursuing a music degree, thinking about being a performer um, or a professional flautist in any way? What advice might you give them um, that you've come across that has helped you become successful? Great. Um, 
So one of the big things that I would say, which um, is one of the things that I'm, I'm actively working on, um, is just addressing your fundamentals every single day. Scales, arpeggios, tone, all of that every single day away from the repertoire so that when you tackle something, when you get to something like Iber Concerto or Mozart in G Major Concerto or, or things, things that are really like difficult from a technical standpoint and from a stylistic standpoint, you have all the tools. Mm -hmm. um, so to sum that up in like just uh, a short um, blurb um, is expanding your toolbox your technical toolbox, making that as large as possible. The other thing I would say is for young musicians, um, get to a healthy place now. Um, not just physical health. Um, I'm all about body positivity and things like that, but I have a, I have a huge belief that um, based on, the, on just research that I've done on performance health is that we musicians are the athletes of the smaller muscles. And that just means like in general, just getting exercise and incorporating that as part of your training. Athletes don't just play basketball, they go to the gym. So like just get a little bit of physical activity, even if that's just walking, get all the blood flowing and um, just keep yourself in, in, in op as optimal health as possible. Um, the last thing I'll point to is, uh, really learn how you work how you learn um and how best to structure things um because you know everybody's different like for me i'm like a i i can kind of be a type a planner so like when i was doing like auditions for grad school i found out the year before like what the standard template was which was like a mozart concerto a boxinata a 20th century concerto and like five excerpts um you know, just knowing like what the basic like things that schools will expect um, and being able to just have that there. Um, and then the last last thing, which I didn't know as, as I was like tackling the college school journey is teachers value relationships like at the end of the day, these college professors are human beings. And um, if you make the effort to like get to know them, get to know how they work, see if you guys will gel well, um, you'll have better chances of, of getting into schools and getting good awards from schools if, you're, if you reach out and make that connection in a professional way. Excellent. I love all of those pieces of advice. Um, I hope people can take the information that you've given them and, and use it to help them on their musical journey as well. Um, Karina, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time, for talking about your experiences um, and your passions as well. Thank you for having me.